Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today I am very happy to welcome Dr. James Wright, and we're going to be discussing secrets hidden in the past, concealed marks, things that I really don't know a lot about, and I can't wait to learn more about. So let's start off by discussing your logo, James. It's fascinating. Why did you choose it? So when you refer to my logo, I presume you mean the logo for my company, Triscally Heritage. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. I run this archaeological consultancy based in the UK. We're based in Nottingham, right in the Midlands. And I set it up about five years or so ago. And my intention really was to work as a buildings archaeologist. So to interpret historic standing structures, buildings, whatever you want to call them. And I'm very keen and curious about the idea that history and archaeology is constantly being interpreted and reinterpreted and looked at by different specialists, by different viewpoints, by different communities. And so that history and archaeology are not necessarily in stasis, they're constantly on the move. And I picked up on this idea of the Triskeli, which is a very, very, very ancient symbol, which goes right back into prehistory and has been used by lots of different groups and organisations and people with different views on the world across time and across space as well. And so I use the Triskeli as a symbol which essentially marks that passage of interpretation and how things are not necessarily always the same. So really it's an acknowledgement that I am part of a whole system of people who have looked at these historic standing buildings for a very long period of time and we're all refining as we go along. We're all standing on the shoulders of giants essentially. I just want to acknowledge that although whatever I might be saying or thinking about historic buildings in this moment in time may be very different from the way that people have looked at history in the past. I'm also sure that when people come and reassess and reinterpret these buildings that I'm now looking at, they will also maybe refine and criticise the work that I'm involved in as well. So it just sort of helps to try and articulate that history isn't a single moment and history isn't forever. It can be looked at and it can be reinterpreted. So that's why I called my company Triscally Heritage, simply to acknowledge that fluidity of historical studies. Well, it's absolutely brilliant, and so is your CV. Consultant, archaeologist, lecturer, author, I could ask, what have you not done? But I would really like to know, how did you get involved in history and archaeology? So I suppose it goes right the way back, as with many people who are interested in this discipline, to their childhood, and certainly my very distant childhood, probably 40 years ago in the very early 1980s for me when I happened to see a historical film, a fictional 
historical film, but I actually think it was a film about the American West and being really taken by this incredible story. And then the following night, there was another historical film on. It was a war film. Me just being blown away by these just incredibly intense stories. I can't remember what either film was, by the way. But my mum sort of saying to me, well, you do know that your granddad fought in that war, the Second World War. He was involved in the Africa campaign and the D-Day landings and was one of the liberators of Bergen-Belsen. So when I sort of found out that these stories were actually real, that blew my tiny little mind. And I suppose from that moment, I decided that the stories that I wanted to listen to were going to be truthful stories, were going to be based in reality. And I read voraciously as a kid. Everybody else was reading comics and maybe children's books. And I was there in the library pulling down adult history books. And I've never really looked back. So when it came to going to university, I was fortunate enough to to go to university. It was the case where it just seemed self-obvious and self-evident that I would study archaeology. I developed this huge passion for the subject and away I went and studied it. And I'm very, very bloody minded. I'm very, very stubborn. So whilst lots of people who study that subject, maybe sort of 80, 70% of people never go on to practice it. I was determined to do so. I set myself, I suppose, a deadline, if you like, of um, working in some aspects of medieval buildings by the time I was 30. By the time I was 22, I was working as a stonemason on numerous medieval buildings, including Nottingham Castle, Newstead Abbey, and, and slightly later Woolerton Hall, which is right in the, in the Tudor period. So I've had this sort of long-lived career really because I just can't and won't do anything else and that's how I suppose I've, I've ended up talking to you now because I've, I've just been doing it for so long now I literally cannot do anything else with my life you literally carved yourself out of niche <laughs> <laughs> quite literally my own blood sweat and tears is very much part of those buildings that I've worked on and I suppose I mentioned that I've worked on medieval buildings and my speciality really is the late medieval period I drift I really do drift right into the early modern period. I don't really see that sharp definition between the late medieval period and the Tudor period. You can't draw a line, particularly not archaeologically, between these phases, between these periods, between these eras of British history. So for me, I can still see things which are recognisably late medieval in the cultural and social background of England well into the 16th century, well into Elizabeth's reign. And I drift right the way through into the 17th century and the English Civil War as well. So my interests are quite wide in terms of time periods, but I always have a focus on historic buildings. Well, what can you tell us about the Tudor era and their usage of markings and rituals? So the Tudor period, or really the late medieval into Tudor period, is one where there's a huge amount of societal changes. And those changes lead to a very, very significant amount of tensions in communities. And those tensions are coming about as a result of things like religious change. So are we Catholic? Are we Protestant any longer? On top of that, There's some quite big, significant political changes from the the old Plantagenet house to the Tudor house. We've also got problems in farming and agriculture and how people are feeding themselves. So we've got the land use being altered in this period in time. So whereas people have previously 
been cereal croppers, they're now moving towards livestock, so sheep farming in particular. And that requires a much lower labour force. So people are literally being kicked off the land by the landowners who want to turn the old open fields into sheep farms. As a result, people are losing their homes, they're losing their access to food. And I think it's no great shock to find that the price of food rockets. At just this particular time, you're also seeing a doubling of the population and also wages are dropping too. So people are really afraid. You can see this manifesting in society. There's a lot of chaos out there. There's a lot of revolt, rebellion. There's a lot of dissent. A lot of questions are being asked. But unfortunately, they can't necessarily see the bigger whole picture for the socio-political economic issues that they are. And what they start doing is, in a sense, society starts imploding on itself. And there's a tendency to start identifying scapegoats. So it, it can't be our fault. It must be somebody else's fault is the, is the way that people think. There's a great early modern historian called James Sharp who was sort of pointed towards this idea that pre-modern societies, when dealing with these huge issues that are facing their communities, those pre-modern societies tend to point towards liminalised, alien, marginalised, othered people. In this context, we start to see the rise in witchcraft accusation. And so people are beginning to accuse people of being witches for creating the problems that they're experiencing. And as a result of the fact that witchcraft or, or the accusation of witchcraft is enshrined within the law, it's also the case that the state will back you up on this. So there are literally hundreds of thousands of accusations of people, 75% women, but with a significant minority of men as well, who were accused of being witches. And this is a very sharp rise at the beginning of the Tudor period, which runs on right the way through to the later 17th century in England. And essentially what's going on here is that people are hugely afraid and in fear of the threat of evil and Satan, the devils, evil spirits and witches. And so what they start to do is to mark up their houses, their, their physical architecture that's surrounding them with certain signs and symbols which have the intention of warding off or driving away the threat of evil. And we can find these signs and symbols archaeologically. Well, thanks for explaining that to us, James. Now, these marks, were they used in every home, the homes of the poor, the wealthy? Were they used in castles? So the marks that we're finding in these buildings when we do archaeological surveys of graffiti, which essentially a lot of this is, we are finding that the marks which are various, they include circles, they include interlocking circles, rosettes, there are checkerboards, there are sometimes letters such as M's for Maria or VV for Virgo Virginum, Virgin of Virgins, so asking for the protection of Mary, the Mother of God. We're sometimes finding curious tear-shaped burn marks in buildings, which seem to be offering some sort of protection against fire. And we are finding these marks all across Europe and also wherever Europeans have travelled to. So we can find these in early modern America as well, and also slightly later on in Australia but also we're finding them throughout time as well. So we're getting fairly good dating evidence that these are 
current in the late medieval all the way through the early modern and into the industrial period. And they are also being found in all social contexts as well. So we are finding them in the households of great landowners, so earls, dukes, royalty, churchmen as well. We're not just finding them in the lower status spaces, so the kitchens, the brew houses. We are finding them in the private chambers, even in the toilets of earls and dukes as well, the private toilet. We're finding these marks in them. And then we're finding them all the way through society. So we might look at an artisan's or a merchant's house in an urban environment, and we will still find them. And we can also find them in the relatively humble homes of tenant farmers and in the associated farmyard structures as well. So it is literally there at all places in society all across Tudor Britain or Tudor England rather and also during the same period across Europe and beyond too. So this is almost like a language within a language. These are signs and symbols which are there with the intent of driving away evil because it is such a huge threat to these communities or perceived threat anyway. This is absolutely fascinating. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Another quick question. Are burn marks included in what you were just naming or are those stone marks is there a way to differentiate or is it all just part of what was going on at the time so there are different ways that these marks are created burn marks are always on timber and they are little blackened sooted charred tear-shaped marks they're often used to be interpreted as being complete accidents by unattended light sources, candles, tapers, rushlights. But good modern experimental archaeology has shown that these things can only be created deliberately. They take an investment of time, take an investment of skill. They take about 10 to 20 minutes to create, and you need to hold your taper very, very still during the process. So we know that they're quite deliberate, we know that they're on timber, we know that they're created with flame. Other marks we can find on timber or on stone, or in fact on brick, if that's what the, the property is built with. And these tend to be incised with a sharp point or a blade. Now, the vast majority of the marks, whether they be, say, meshes or checkerboards, are probably cut with a knife blade. Everybody had a knife blade at this period in time. You needed it for work, you needed it for cooking with, eating with. It was a, you know, a common tool. So everybody's got access to a knife blade and it's easy to, to incise into, into the buildings these signs and symbols. But equally, if you hadn't got a knife blade handy, you could probably create a lot of these marks with a simple nail. They're not particularly difficult to create. Now, sometimes we do get evidence that they've been created by particular 
people in society. So there is a particular type of tool called a raised knife, which is only used by carpenters. And it leaves a very significant and easy to spot half round profile. It's used for marking up buildings during assembly by carpenters. And we're finding these ritualized, protective, what often called apotropaic symbols uh, marked up on buildings by carpenters, as well as their usual assembly marks. So places such as Knoll in Kent, which is the house of the Lord Treasurer of England, who is responsible to both Elizabeth I and to James I, there's some remodelling there done around the year 1600, and we're finding that the carpenters were marking up the beams during construction with these protective marks as well. So sometimes we can even point to the class of people who are responsible for them. It's not that necessarily it's a builder's tradition, it's just that these particular builders were susceptible to the same fears in society as everybody else. That is just absolutely blowing my mind. I had no idea that it was everywhere, quite literally. So thanks for pointing that out to me. And I do have another question. One of your lectures is entitled Cultural Anxieties and Ritual Protection in High-Status Early Modern Houses. That is such an intriguing title, James. Can you tell us more? Well, that's a fancy archaeological title that was dreamed up for a conference which was held at Norwich Castle in 2016 on just such this as subject as, as this, as, as ritualised markings in historic buildings. If we kind of break it down, what I've done with that particular title is to simply try and acknowledge that we have got these tensions in society, these cultural tensions, these anxieties that the marks that we're finding can also be found in very, very high status locations, as in castles, in palaces, in great houses. And what I was particularly doing with that lecture, which also went on to be an article which was published the year after in 2017 in the Hidden Charms collection, which is a, the proceedings of that particular conference at Norwich, what I was trying to do really was to acknowledge that we're finding these in, the, in these high status buildings. So what I did was I contrasted and compared two particular sites that I'd worked on quite recently at that period in time when I used to work for the Museum of London Archaeology and in the period 2014 to 2015 I'd found these marks in the King's Tower at Knoll in Kent and these marks were dated to the early 17th century and there they were connected to the remodelling of this great courtyard house by the Lord Treasurer, who I just mentioned earlier, Thomas Sackville, the Earl of Dorset. And then also around that same time, I'd also found some marks in the Queen's House at the Tower of London, which was constructed a little bit earlier in the 1540s. And there we saw two great buildings which were partially timber framed, which were both seeing high quantities of protective markings. So what I wanted to do was to show how such buildings could be presented, how we could see similarities between the two of them. And also there was actually a slight link, and that link was actually the, the powder treason of 1605, which of course is two years after the Tudor period. So I'm not sure if that's necessarily right for your podcast, but we'd seen that Guy Fawkes was actually interrogated at the Queen's house. So this is a building with a grim reputation. So therefore, 
therefore did we need to be protected from the threat of evil because of course the powder treasoners were pointed out as being in league with the forces of hell at this particular time and then we go and see the marks at Knoll which were put there in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot and there we're seeing maybe the marks to protect the royal family when they come and visit this great progress house so we're slightly outside of the Tudor period but I'm sure that your listeners will find some interest in that period because after all the gunpowder plot has been called the last great Elizabethan plot has it not Absolutely. And we dive into before the Tudors and after the Tudors, because you have to understand what happened before and after to really understand what happened with the Tudors, don't you think? I really do. You know, as I said at the beginning of this, I don't think you can draw a sharp line. In 1485, the Battle of Bosworth, everybody didn't sort of wake up the morning after stretch and say, oh, we're all Tudors now. It's the Renaissance. It's the Reformation. We all have to think and act differently. You know, life trundled on for most people. Most people (laughs) didn't notice it at all. Being an archaeologist, I I look at the broad picture, the, the vast swathes of time. For me to come down and work on a single year is actually usually quite unusual. Usual. I mentioned before that I don't really have a, a set period where I think of the end of the medieval period. It's somewhere between the end of Henry VIII's reign and, and the Spanish Armada, something like that. You can probably draw a line, but you can't come down with these sharp divisions. So I'm, I'm glad that you play a bit fast and loose with time as well. Thank you. Now, back to your lectures. Are any of these available online for us? So, yes, I do put some of my lectures online. Not that often. Mostly, if I'm doing online lecturing, I like to keep it live because I like to engender community. So it's not very often that I record any of my talks. But the talk that I've been referring to with connection to the ritual markings and protective markings at Knoll in Kent is available online. So I did a talk for Gresham College in 2015, and the results of that are available on YouTube. And also I've put a lecture up myself onto YouTube through Triscally Heritage, my company, on historic graffiti more generally. So looking at how we can use the study of inscriptions on buildings to closer understand the past and to understand the lives of ordinary people which are not necessarily always represented in the historical record so for most people you only enter the historic record if you end up in court which is of course a really odd moment in someone's life it's not the norm so to actually see the background of what it's like to be alive in the Tudor period I recommend looking at the graffiti because that is actually people's lives represented by themselves in their own inscription so it's a good way of getting to understand how they thought and fully about a quarter to a third of inscriptions that we record are representative of these great fears in society so they are these protective marks as a result of that quite a large chunk of that talk that i've put online about historic graffiti is actually representative of what we're talking about today and i've I've actually recorded two versions of that so there's there's a kind of a very still recording in a studio and then there's another one where it's a recording of me live as well. So it's, it's actually a Zoom lecture. So my historic graffiti lectures out there and the Knoll lecture looking at the historic graffiti connected with the gunpowder plot is out there too. So that's where people can find out more about these particular subjects. Okay, thank you. All Things Tudor has like 25,000 members now. So 
I want to make sure we get those out to them. And have you written any books on these subjects, James? I have written some books, but not on this subject. I've written a few articles. I've actually written some chapters of a book which this subject will be relevant to, but that book won't be out until later this year or earlier next year. So I can't really talk too much about that at the moment, unfortunately. The timing's not quite right. Okay, so last question. Where can we find you on social media? Okay, so I like social media a lot, actually. And you can find me on Twitter. That's the one that I use principally for for my work-related activities. My handle is JPW archaeology and i really believe in the power of social media not just to sort of broadcast what you're doing and 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 be this sort of self-important person who only talks about themselves but also to engage with all sorts of people one of the things that i really really like is having my own opinions challenged and criticized and you can't really come to truths without having this dialogue with people and yes you can write a very long article and four years later somebody might criticize that but if you just pop something out there on twitter you know a blog article or even a journal article which you put up on you could end up in really fruitful discussions with other specialists or in fact non-specialists who will offer you an alternative perspective really works for me i've really enjoyed using twitter for many years i resisted it but the seven years that I've been on there, I've actually found to be a really positive experience. So that, that's the only place that people can really connect with me on. I don't really use any of the other platforms at the moment. But yeah, if you want to track me down on Twitter, it's JPW Archaeology. Well, thank you. And thank you very much for joining us today. It has been so insightful speaking with you and all things Tudor loves anything to do with, of course, Tudors. But witchcraft, superstition, anything that surrounded them and their day-to-day lives, and you've covered that very well. So please come back and visit us at any time, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you, James. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.